Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Everybody, my name is James D. Fury, and this is Blackball. It's Writer Day on Blackball, and I'm really excited today for, for a few reasons. One of them is we have, and I know he's technically an American. I don't know if he's dual citizen. I think he is, but I consider him to be a Canadian author, and he's what I consider to be one of the greatest living Canadian authors, certainly one of the most successful. Uh, his latest book is called The Lie Maker destined to be a bestseller people are calling it his best work i don't know how a writer feels about that when when people you know give such high praise to a book um because then it maybe for some feels like a sophomore jinx uh even though he's written i think 23 novels but you know how do you follow up <laughs> what people are calling your best book the wall street journal said it takes such a gifted writer to perfectly balance all the suspense wit violence and poignance in a book such as this Lucky for us, Mr. Barclay is one of the best in the business, and we have him today here on Black Belt. So please welcome to the show, Mr. Mr. Linwood Barclay. Linwood, how are you, buddy? James, I'm great. Nice to be with you again. Nice to be with you. And, is that a? That's your first question. I am a dual citizen. I am Canadian. I've lived in Canada since I since I was three years old. So I feel sort of seventy percent Canadian. You know what I mean? Well, when you're a writer, can you just be Canadian so that we can boast yes. that we have uh, someone on the bestseller list? Oh, no, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. We have a few, though. We have a few really good ones. Um, you know, uh, Louise Penny. Yeah. I work in library. And so there are certain, um, like, I'm an assistant librarian here during the day at, uh, where I live in the Madawaska Valley. And there are, uh, you know, there's, there's more than a few writers that have... Uh, a lot of titles and a, that are extremely popular and you're definitely one of them uh you know uh, uh louise penny is definitely one of them there's, there's been a few canadians we represent pretty well i think on the writing scene yeah i think so um i want to start off this by by letting you know that i when, when i started reading your book i felt every time i finished a chapter i felt compelled to go back to the first chapter because I, it, it, it starts off with, uh, with a man who's leaving his uh, mother and child. And I'll let you explain like the thrust of the book. But, but the, uh, leaving his, his, uh, his wife and his child uh, to be put basically in a witness relocation program. And the interaction between father and son there, I, I, it, it was really compelling to me. Because 
I, I read it probably five or six times. Every time I would finish the chapter, I'd go back to it. Sometimes I'd be in the place of father because I have an eight-year-old son. And sometimes I'd be in the place of the son because my father's no longer with me. And I was just sort of wondering if you had um, some sort of experience when you were writing that, if you were able to place yourself in both shoes, both sets of shoes. Yeah, I think I, I certainly can. I mean, I mean, first of all, I'm, I, I'm a father of two. They're both grown and, and long since out of the house in their 30s. But I mean, I certainly have it from that point of view. But also, I, I, I think there's a theme that's kind of run through some of the other books. Um, and my lost my dad when I was just 16. He was only 59 years old. Hmm. And I think that more than anything else that's happened to me in my life was the sort of pivotal moment. There's the moment, there's all those years before my dad died, and then there's everything that happened after. Because I had to, I had to kind of instantly grow up. Um, I had an older brother, 11 years older, now uh, who was old, but he was suffering from schizophrenia. And we had a family business, which was like a, a cottage resort trailer park near Bob Cajun. Mm-hmm. And I essentially, uh, had to take over running the place at the age of 16. So I didn't have these kind of wild, carefree years of, you know, teenage drinking and partying and so forth that I so dearly wish I tried to make up for later. Um, so I kind of initially grew up at that age. So, and, and to this day, you know, it's been more than 50 years since my dad passed away. I still dream about him all the time. So, yeah, I, I, excuse me, I was listening to a couple of your interviews, excuse me, and uh, one of the things, one of the inspirations you said for the book stemmed from a posting um, where you uh, you tweeted out your father's wallet on the 50th history of his death. And I have that tweet right here. It says, it's been nearly 50 years since my dad died. This is his wallet. It's always been in my desk drawer. Tell me about the unexpected sort of avalanche of people responding to that tweet after your friend Stephen King had retweeted it. Well, and there's, there's the wallet. I just pulled it out of my desk here. Uh, I, and as I say, I've always had it. Uh, what have we got in here? We've got his driver's license, his proof of insurance. Um, uh, let's see. We also have in here, we have a picture of me. Oh, look wow. at that hair. That's yeah, beautiful. well, and and uh, and also this photostat, this crumbly little piece of paper inside that was proof of his landed immigrant status in Canada. So I... I tweeted one day, just sort of very straightforwardly, it was my dad's wallet. I've had it in my desk for 50 years. He died in 1971, I guess it was. And yeah, Stephen King retweeted it. He follows me on Twitter and it went nuts. I mean, I just, every, hundreds of people were replying sort of, yeah, I still have my, my mother's sweater. I've still got my dad's fishing rod. I still, and there are all these things that we hang on to. And, and I thought, yeah, there's, something there and so at the end of that prologue in the, in the in the lion maker the last thing that the dad gives to his son before he goes off into the witness relocation program he's not taking his family with him mm-hmm. gives him his wallet it's got 15 bucks in it and everything in it all the id says i don't need it now because they're going to make all new stuff for me and so the wallet you know, I had the idea for kind of a witness relocation story first and, an, and a specific different angle for it. But after the wallet tweet, I thought that's, I'm, I'm folding that into it. So give us, uh, what is the lie maker about? 
So the Hummingbird by a guy named is about a guy named Jack Gibbons. He is a, a writer, uh, a sort of critically well received writer, but not particularly successful. Um, he's as our story opens, he's trying to get a job editing and laying out trade magazines, you know, because at least he's dealing with words and copy and stuff. But and he gets uh, an offer out of the blue from someone with the Witness Relocation Program, and they say, "Look, we're really good at." hiding people and setting them up in new locations and protecting them after they've testified. But we're not very creative. We're not very good at coming up with a really good backstory for them that they can tell people, oh, this is what my life was. And we've read your books and we think you might be really good at creating those love backstories. And he thinks that's a pretty interesting gig and they're offering him a lot of money to do it. And the other thing is he can't believe that they didn't know that because he now has a different name that his own father went into the program and so he thinks well you know what maybe if i take this gig they can reconnect me with my dad and and it becomes evident before too long that maybe he better connect with him sooner rather than later because his dad may be at tremendous risk so that's that's her setup you know and and that prologue that we talk about that's when his dad went away uh, years ago so yeah that's our that's our elevator pitch for uh the line maker and as I said, you know, he gets hired to write these backstories. And as I like to say with everyone in books, as every one of my books, uh, and then mayhem ensues. Yes. <laughs> it's always good when mayhem ensues. You're really good. At yeah, you're really good at twists. And uh, I really enjoyed how you um, how you hit us over and over again with twists um, in the last act of the book. And I'm wondering, do you, when you write, uh, well, I'll, I'll just say specifically for the line maker, do you write it for um, because you feel like most readers will read it in like one, two or three sittings so that they'll remember how to relate the twist at the end with something in the middle? I, I don't honestly think about how quickly they'll read it. Mm-hmm. Although I, I do think that my hope is that I'm writing a, you know, cliche as the cliche goes, a page turner. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the kind of a book where when you finish one chapter, you think, you know what? I'll just read one more before I go to bed. And then you get there and you think, well, maybe just one more. It's kind of like, I'm just going to have one more potato chip. And, and so that's certainly the goal. Everybody reads at a different speed. You know, some people, I mean, people say I read this book in one sitting and I'm thinking the last book I read in one sitting was the cat in a hat. Um, but uh, mine was the Da Vinci code. Oh, geez. I could, I could only get 50 pages into that. Oh, but anyway, <laughs> Um, I was uh, twenty. I was twenty-three in my defense. I I thought you know I better read that. I should know what everybody's talking about. And I got to page fifty, and I thought you know life's just it's too short. But um, but it is that's the goal. I so but you know not everybody reads at the same rate. But I'm hoping that it's the kind of book that they're going to want to at whatever pace they have. You know that they'll read it that quickly. It's the kind of book that you can easily see becoming a movie. Has there been any talks yet about that? We've had, well, uh, we be, in the last few weeks, we had three different interested parties. And uh, one after another, they all, fell, they all fell apart. One of them I just turned down. Um, and now, we're, of course, we're in the writer's strike. And I think there's another possible interested party, but everything's just completely stalled. So, you know, I mean, I, I have long since uh, stopped getting excited about movie options and so forth, because I've, I've, you know, the loss of my books have been optioned. 
Uh, we've only seen two things that have been made. We got one movie made in Canada called, based on my book, Never Saw It Coming, and I wrote the screenplay for it. We had Eric Roberts and Emily Hampshire in it. And they made a TV series in France out of my book, The Accident. And, um, and you know, and maybe there'll be more, but I've, it's, you know, it's, I, I, I look at when someone options a book and by optioning, you know, they, 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 they sort of buy a portion of it so that they hold on to it for a year and a half. And then if they, if they actually make the movie, then you get the big chunk of cash. I just I think optioning a, a book is is like putting a library book on reserve that you never pick up. Oh, I hate that. I work at a library. I can't stand <clears> that. That's kind of that's really what that's what it's like when you have your book optioned for a movie. Someone's reserved book at the library and they're never going to get it. But no one else can have it for a year and a half. And also writers don't really get much of a say most of the time. When it depends. You... It depends. <clears throat> like like there's only so many J.K. Rowling's in the world. There's a very small handful of people that have any control over things once it gets optioned. Yeah, Harlan Coben talked about this one time. Although he's had so many Netflix series of late, he may have more control. But he described the process as uh, walking up to a big wall, the kind of one that Trump wanted to build. You walk up to this big wall and you throw your book over the wall. And then you wait there for a couple of minutes and then the producers on the other side throw you a check attached to a rock and that comes back over and then you both go your separate ways. Oh, I thought you were going to say the rock hits you in the head. <laughs> well, that's, it may feel like that. And, um, but I've, I mean, I've been in pro involved in maybe three or so projects over the last few years where I, if it had been made, I would have had a say because I was involved in the adaptation. You know, I spent like four years uh, working on an adaptation of my Promise Falls trilogy and writing, you know, scripts for that. And then that died. I spent, God, five years ago? Five years ago, uh, Martin Campbell, the director who made Casino Royale, with the, the first of the um, Craig, uh, uh, what's his, Daniel Craig movies. And he's done, he made Golden Eyes, made a whole bunch of others. Uh, he and a producer wanted to make a six-part series out of my novel, Trust Your Eyes. That's your favorite book, I believe. I think it's, it's my favorite. And and they wanted me to write all six episodes. And so I got flown to London, and there were meetings, and I spent all this time with them, and then I spent the next six months writing um, uh, 12 drafts of episode one. And at the end of that, ITV, the big network over there, who were interested, decided, yeah, I don't think we'll do it. So... <laughs> Okay. At least, when you, at least when you have a book contract and you write the book, it comes out. So I kind of, I think I'll stick with that. Is it frustrating the screenwriting process for you? Like some, you know, people that aren't writers um, probably wonder why, uh, you know, when novelists are writing their novel, that once it's over, they just don't immediately go into the action mode and write the screenplay. But it's a totally different beast. Yeah, I actually, the actual writing, <clears throat> excuse me, the actual writing of a screenplay, I love it. I really love writing screenplay. And, you know, because in a novel, you're writing backstory and description and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, just get rid of all of that. You don't do any of it. It's like you sift this, this novel down to its essence. Mm. In fact, when I have <clears throat> adapted my own work, I tend to not even look at the book much longer because I know the story in my head and I kind of just tell it again like I was telling, telling a friend what the story is because it's so, you know, whittled down. And, and that I just love what I 
don't love is that then you hand it in and like everybody and their uncle and their uncle's dog weighs in on what they think it means. And maybe, and so then you try to please those people and you do that and then you give it back to them. And then they say, oh, well, I think it should be this way and this way. And that's the way it was in the last draft. And so it's really not a lot of fun. Uh, you um, you told a, an interesting story in uh, in an interview that I I will just watched. Uh, first of all, I want to say that the wallet um, tweet that you talked about, where other people were sort of showing you uh, in the comments, you know, this is this is my mother's clothes, this is my father's hat, and all that kind of stuff. That is my father's uh, baseball jersey. That's why okay. I put it up there. Um, you know, so and um, you were talking about. And I was so happy to hear you say this because I feel like I'm the only one that saw this movie out of my peer group. The outfit and how amazing oh. that was. Oh, such a good thriller. And uh, the reason why I bring that up is because Jonathan McClain, who I think co-wrote the screenplay, yeah. is now being assigned with another gentleman. I'm sorry, whose name escapes me, is going to do the audio book for your book. But interesting um, sort of like small world story with that. Yeah, yeah well, it's really funny. So um, I, I had seen the outfit which uh, stars, um, oh God, uh, Mark Rylance, great character actor, but he's got his own movie. He plays, I think the movie kind of takes place in the forties and he's a cutter or a suit maker, runs this, and, it, and it's, it's done like a play because it really takes place all in kind of one location. And his tailor shop is also a drop-off point for like mob money. And I thought it was a great thriller. It had lots of great twists, beautifully acted and really well written. So I just tweeted, saw the outfit. What a great thriller. And one of the people who responds is a guy named Jonathan McClain, who was the co-writer of the movie. But as it turns out, he said, I was so thrilled that you liked it because I was also the audiobook narrator for one of your novels. And I thought, small world. So I put in I put I put in a word, and now he's the he did the uh, he's there's more than one uh, reader, but um, he did the Lion Maker audiobook. Is it, is it, uh, first of all, do, do, you don't normally know who, I mean, I'm sure you're busy, but like, you don't normally know who does the audiobooks. What, what often happens is I will be sent an email with, um, and a lot of times audio, I don't listen to audiobooks. I'm glad they're made on my books, but I don't, I don't listen to them. And, but they may have like, instead of just one person reading the whole book, there may be four people doing different characters in the audiobook. So they will send me, here are three people that we think would be good for this character. Here are three that we think would be good for this one. So, and they send me samples. And so I listed all the samples and I ranked them, you know, from who I thought was the best and second best and so forth. So they do send that to me. And the thing is, it's always very hard because they're really all good. Yeah. And everybody's really good at this stuff. So, but they do usually fly that past me. Have you ever considered doing any of the audio stuff? The only one I ever did was I did, um, uh, where is it now? Let me see if it's over on my shelf, if I can even find it. It's too spot, hard to spot. Where is it? Anyway, um, I took a, a couple of years ago, I did a little bit of a side shift. I did a short, did a short humor book about Ontario's uh, brilliant premier, Doug Ford. And uh, it was called Ford Abomination. Yeah. And I uh, did the audio book of that. But it was only like 70 pages. I think we did the whole thing in three hours. Yeah. Do you, are you politically inclined? Like, do you keep track of what's going on in politics? Oh, God, yeah. Um, very much so. 
I'm, uh, and I tweet about it. When I, for a long time, I, for 14, 15 years, I had a, a three columns a week at the Toronto Star. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was allegedly a humor column. And I'd say about a third to 40% of them were sort of political satire. And, and now they don't have a column, but there's Twitter. So I work out my anger uh, about various, all the hypocrisies in the world in a tweet, which is about a 20th the length of a column. So I figured the columns were overwritten. Um, but I'm very interested in that. In fact, I'm doing a really, uh, I'm really a really cool thing this Sunday. I must put in a plug for it. this, 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 this weekend is the um, Motive Crime Fiction Festival in Toronto. Oh, James Comey's going to be at that, I think. And I'm interviewing Comey. Oh, so, really? So former FBI director James Comey, fired by Trump, blamed by many for Hillary losing. Yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't blame him for that. But uh, he's cre- he's written a novel. In fact, I have it right here. He's written a novel called Central Park West. Mm-hmm. On tour right now. He's coming to Toronto, and on Sunday, I'm on stage for an hour with him, talking to him. I'm so excited about that. Yeah. Now, I, I was going to ask you about this actually because I I, I think uh, I think I knew that you both were going to be there. Um, and and I want to be delicate because I don't want to like slam anybody. But your book is being heralded as like the best one you've ever written. His uh, his book it's not getting very good reviews. And I'm wondering if you think that I mean critics are critics. Like you know you can listen to him. You don't have to listen to him. Do you think that um, he's got sort of two strikes against him because of who he was before he became a novelist? Well, size, I mean, kinds of some critics, some sometimes you can't. Some critics can't separate the person or what they've done from the work that they've done. Hmm. And and if you can't do that, then and if you don't like the guy, you're not going to probably let, you're, not, you're just going to let that slant how you feel about the book. And I've read at least one review that kind of came across that way. Matt Taibbi um, wrote something that was just sorry. Matt uh, Bloomberg Bloomberg wrote uh, was not very kind. Um, Here's the thing. I think, and he's got some, you know, he's got some wonderful quotes on the back from the likes of Harlan Coben and Michael Connolly and Ian Rankin and so forth. Um, look, it's a good book. Um, he knows his, he, certainly he knows his stuff. Like he knows the material, he knows that world. So he's got all of that down pat. And, and I think that, you know, it's first novel. Like, it's not his first book, but the first novel. And he wants to continue it as a series with this the character, this this uh, woman prosecutor. So I think I would expect that he'll just get better at it. You know, his he'll, the characters, the character development, all those kind of things. But you know, it's got it's a good read, and um, and so I and I and I'm curious to talk to him about the fact that he has lived through things that were more mind blowing than anything he'll ever be able to imagine in a novel. So, kind yeah. of talk about how do you feel? Because I'm just thinking about this now. So, uh, you know, Louise Penny uh, did a book with Hillary Clinton. It yeah. felt like I guess Hillary Clinton was more like I think it was called State of Terror. I think it, you know Hillary Clinton probably was more like a consultant to like what are the innards like? Like what's it behind the curtain? And then sort of giving that information. Is that a smarter play for pe- people who are not? really know in the writing world or, or who are coming from a totally different world, like in politics or law enforcement? I, well, I don't know. First of all, I know that, that uh, Hillary and Louise Penny are very good friends. Okay. And so I'm sure that that the idea for this grew out of that friendship and, and Hillary knows this whole world and she probably knows all sorts of horrible things that almost happen. 
and Louise is, is a great writer and, and plot and plotter. And I'm sure that that just dovetailed perfectly for them to do that together. And of course, you know, um, Bill Clinton and James Patterson have written two thrillers together. And so I think it's kind of, I think it's an interesting way to go about it. I think Comey, because Comey has already, you know, Comey, well, Hillary has too, but Comey had already written a couple of books. Comey could write. And so I think he felt that he was certainly more uh, up to the task of doing it on his own. Have you ever considered, and is there a, uh, a, a negative ancillary sort of characteristic to setting a novel in Canada when you want it to sell outside of Canada? I think that that there that's an that there's a factor in that, but it depends. I think it depends on the book, it depends on the writer. All of my books have been, with the exception of the first four novels, which are kind of not really clear where they are, even though I imagine it's Toronto and Oakville and so forth. Mm-hmm. But most the bulk of my novels have been uh, set in either upstate New York or in Milford, Connecticut, and. And so I think that to some degree, there's there's a marketing factor in there. I think some people are angry that I haven't set my books in Canada. And I think, well, I'm, you know, I want to, I hope for the broadest audience I can get. I mean, the irony is that I couldn't get a Canadian publisher for my fiction until book seven. I had written books and we've sent them to Canadian publishers and yeah. they weren't interested. And but Bantam Books in the U.S. was. So, you know, you dance with the one what brung you. And, uh, but then around book seven, um, the Canadian publisher sort of went, so, you know, we really would like to So <laughs> things got, things changed. You know, it's like that in the music industry too. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times, like I had to sell, I had to sell like half a million books in Germany and a million books I had to have sell. I had to have the best-selling novel of the year in the UK in 2008 hmm. before I got a publisher in my backyard. Why do you think that is? I don't, not, not not for you personally, but it feels like there's a tentativeness among uh, the music industry professionals in Canada, the publishing industry. Like they're so risk adverse or something. And, and, and if it's not quintessential Canadian content, they just, they, they, you know, they, they seem to not really want to take a chance. I think that's true just about everywhere these days. Nobody wants okay. to take a chance. And that's true of U.S. publishing and, and movie. I think it's everywhere. So much money is at stake in everything now. And that, that everybody wants a sure thing. And there aren't any sure things. And so because there are no sure things, everyone's afraid to make a move. And and I think it's certainly at the time, and we're going back almost 20 years now, my first novel came out in 2004. Mm-hmm. So we're going back almost 20 years. And Canada has, deservedly so, a wonderful reputation of, of, of literary fiction and, and authors that produce literary fiction. So when you're writing crime fiction, there was a kind of, well, you know, it's not really what we do. And, and yet, you know, if you look at a bestseller list, that's, I mean, thrillers and so forth dominate lists. And at some point, someone decided maybe we should be nice to make a whole bunch of money too, so. Sometimes it feels like we are beholden to this romanticized version of writers from the past. And I think the last one that I would put in that category is like a Mordecai Richler. Like we, you know, he's he's a quintessential Canadian writer. He, you know, everything that he wrote was set in Canada. Um, I, 
you know, I didn't dislike him or anything. I thought Barney's version was amazing, uh, but yeah. a lot of his books I couldn't get through. You know, like Barney's version. Unless I mean, I mean, let's not keep in mind. I mean, Louise Penny sets her books in Canada. I mean, she's. True. I think that when and John O'Splint, when he was writing crime fiction, he had set his. In, in, and I and I think that if your setting is really uniquely Canadian, mm. and and that kind of is that really works. I think you can. I think it's it's you know. I think it's this off the top of my head. I think it's better to set a book in some small town in Quebec than to set it in Toronto. Hmm. How come? Toronto's like so many other cities, you know, and that's why God knows that's why they shoot so many TV series in Toronto because it looks like New York or it looks like any number of other places. But when you have a setting that is really very, very unique, and I think that's why Louise's books are in for just one reason why her books are so immensely popular. Um, just on Barney's version for a second, uh, what I really liked about the book, and I don't know how many books do this, because to be honest, I mostly read nonfiction, but um, to use footnotes as a way to correct his Alzheimer's was, <laughs> was one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen in a novel. It's been so long since I read it. So what, what I remember from Barney's version is a section of the novel where I think he's trying to read the newspaper and his wife is talking to him. And, and it goes on for like six pages where he's, you know, he's not listening. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's just so, it's so hilariously funny. Yeah. And of course, I remember that amazing last couple of pages when we find out what happened. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's yeah, that, that, uh, that was one of the best books I think I've read. Uh, and I read it when I was in my 20s, and it just, it made me want to continue to write, uh, you know, even though I wasn't a novelist. But, um, yeah, the, the, the Canadian landscape is interesting right now. Would you ever consider doing, because um, I know you, you, you seem to be a pretty, like, you seem to be, like, in your prime right now, because, like, th again, this book is getting all these accolades. But you, you're a pretty quick writer. Like you, you've been putting out books consistently for a long time. Are you? Would you ever consider uh, trying to do something current? You're into politics. You live in Canada. You're a Canadian, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, but a foreign interference book or something like that with Canadian, uh, with a Canadian angle. Do you know what I mean? Like so that it sort of stays current and relevant. Would you ever consider something like that? Um, I don't know. Maybe I. I felt that the the I did two books last. Two books came out last year. I felt the second one was was very current or prescient you know i had a, i did a little bit of a departure and i did a wrote a novel called look both ways mm -hmm. and look both ways was more like a michael crichton novel and it was about uh, a test community on an island for uh, self-driving cars autonomous cars and a virus gets introduced into the system and the only cars on the island are now self-driving cars everybody mm -hmm. surrendered their conventional vehicles to the island to the mainland and everybody was given a car to use for a month and a virus gets introduced into the system and all the cars essentially become homicidal it'd be like being on an island with a thousand christines so yeah. i had a blast writing that book and uh, it actually comes out in paperback in the uk next week and better, better than just to, to tell my audience way better than maximum overdrive i don't know if you remember that movie <laughs> yes yeah, not quite not quite the same um as maximum overdrive um, I got, I had a funny tweet from Stephen King one time. He, I had, on side, I had tweeted that the movie Vertigo, the Hitchcock movie Vertigo, which is my, either my first or second favorite movie of all time. It goes back and forth with that rear window. That the last 
five minutes of Vertigo are the best last five minutes of any movie ever made. And Stephen King replied to that and he said, what about Maximum Overdrive? <laughs> so we know that he has a sense of humor about these things. Yeah, that's right. Because you know, you directed that movie. Steve, um, movie adaptations from his books has been like the craziest roller coaster ever. Like there's so many movies that are amazing and brilliant. I really enjoyed the um uh the Kennedy time travel uh miniseries. Oh, same I uh, the his the 20 um ugh, I always get the numbers wrong. 11 22 Yeah. That, that's in my top 5 favorite King books and the adaptation the miniseries is superb. It's I think it's one of the best TV adaptations that's ever been done of his stuff. One hundred percent. And the idea that um, when he finally thinks he saved everything and comes back to a completely dystopian Armageddon kind of planet is 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 an interesting lesson. And uh, the only problem that I had with with both the book and the miniseries is like, okay, can someone explain why this closet brings you to nineteen sixty three? And he's like, nope. <laughs> uh, well, I was talking about that with someone as matter well, as recently as yesterday. Really? And I said, he had to find a way to send this guy to the past. And he came up with that. And you either buy it or you don't. Really, right. We just want to get him to the past to try to stop the Kennedy assassination. And we want to do it with a minimum of fuss and explanation. We just want to get him there. So we know what? we got a door here that somehow takes him to the past. You're either going to accept it or not. And if you do, you're in for a hell of a ride. I guess explaining that would be a lot harder than accepting it. <laughs> yes. How, how would you go about that? I don't know. Um, your leopard is called The Lie Maker. Um, you guys need to read this book. Uh, it's, it's again, being heralded uh, by many critics as your best work ever. I think it's going to be a movie one day, and it'll be a great one. Linwood Barkley, thank you very much for joining us tonight on Blackballed. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Lots of fun. Good night, sir. He's dope. You guys need to read uh, Linwood Barkley's books because he's, uh, he's one of Canada's greatest living writers, easily. Okay. Um... I don't have a show tomorrow. I have a show on Friday, Casual Friday. And then I am off to Chicago. And while I am there, I am interviewing uh, Max Bernier on the 6th and Brett Wilson on the 7th. Uh, and I, I have another one um, that is kind of a maybe. So we'll figure out uh, what that's going to be, but I'm not going to announce it yet. Uh, I really enjoy talking to uh, Lynn McBarkey. You guys really need to go pick up his book. Once again, it's called The Lie Maker. And um, if you guys are into reading uh, books that you don't want to put down, this is definitely the book for you. I am not a fiction reader, and I didn't have to force myself to read this or anything. It was dope. And uh, it's one of those books that you will read in one or two sittings without any issues. So um, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Black Book. Black Book. Black, black, black Book. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. 
I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.